if you were here 400 years ago or 300 years ago and you were in a pub down the road, you might have pubbed together to put some money in a ship and you would have put uh, a crew together and given them three years worth of supplies and uh, three years later they might have turned back up. With some goodies, they, they might have uh, not returned. That was a different level of risk. People with money are always looking for ways to make more money and people without money who've got ideas are always looking for backers. It's as old as anything. When William Reeves started engaging in selling Love Film, he never quite imagined just how complicated the whole process would be. After all, he was already a seasoned entrepreneur with an excellent exit under his belt. And on the other side of the table, he had a seasoned VC in Simon Cook. So between them, they expected that perhaps selling to Amazon wouldn't be quite as complicated as it ended up being. However, a series of unusual mergers, buyouts, disputes and more led to this being one of the more complicated deals of both their lives. And despite being the one with the greatest opportunity for financial return, it didn't necessarily pan out that way. It's rare you get to hear the backstory of a negotiation in such a well-known deal as what has become Amazon Prime Video. But on Secret Leaders, we specialise in rare insights. So we hope you enjoy this slightly more technical episode with details you won't hear anywhere else. Enjoy. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. This is probably the part where we usually do a rather quick, you know, run through of what someone's journey and uh, life and experience has been. But, you know, look at all of those uh, logos up there and there's quite a lot. So um, in two minutes, how would you yourself describe your entrepreneurial journey? Because if I do it, I'm going to fuck it up. And there's a little bit more than that, which is sort of folded off the edge, I see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, um... Well, I just got busy copy and pasting. Couldn't be bothered. My first business is not even on there, you so-and-so. This is true. Uh, which is Fletcher Research. Yes. I started off as uh, selling picks and shovels to gold miners, really, um, writing research about the internet. And you wonder why I didn't at put that up there. Of, at the end of the day, you, uh, when you're selling picks and shovels, you always want to be mining for gold. And uh, that's kind of what happened with me. So I found myself uh, setting up what became Love Film, as we'll talk about. And after that, um, got involved as a angel or non-exec and a whole bunch of different businesses. And... Um, best known probably for Zoopla and Secret Escapes and Greys, uh, and but I've invested in 60, 70-odd businesses over the last 15 years. And We can see why I didn't have we room. We only talk about three of them. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have room on the slides yeah. for all 60 or 70. Um, what is your most successful investment so far? Depends how you look at it. I think in terms of um, percentage increase, I think it's Secret Escapes. Uh, or it's actually, it's, it could be, it's probably Zoopla, actually, but in terms of... Um, Money is secret escapes. Okay, and the previous co-founder with Alex Chesterman. Yep. So did you get in from day one? I was I was one of the first four founders of Zupa from in the original cap table. Yeah. Okay, amazing. Right, so you can it's almost embarrassing. I didn't manage to stick that one on. That was a copy and paste fail. I think we can call that. Um, you're currently enjoying life as a CEO, not a founder. I am. Yes. What's that like then? So you, you've been appointed a CEO, so to speak, rather I than have. and and what I can't really get my head around why on earth you would choose to do that after all this experience. Uh, so I enjoy leading and managing, and I enjoy um, the process of building stuff. And I'm a little bit old to be setting it up from scratch. Uh, and I got uh, introduced to Good Lord by one of the investors who I work with on some of these businesses, and could see a natural fit, really. Um, what does it do? It, it provides software for letting agents and, and sort of tries to really own the rental transaction on residential property. And how would you compare uh, being a CEO of a funded startup on your stress and cortisol levels compared to all your previous experiences? I'm working with a bunch of very, very talented youngsters, uh, and uh, they were kind of pre-hired, really, before I got there, so... And hiring is such a major stress point that uh, it's good not to have, have had to do that. It's definitely a different generation, and you, I noticed that compared to the sort of uh, experiences that I went through back in the Park Royal Industrial Estate with Love Film in the early 2000s. Not as glamorous as that picture makes it. Not quite as glamorous as the WeWorks that are now proliferating around this part of town. But, of course, there's so much tech that's moved on, and, and so many things are so much faster and easier and cheaper to do now than they were when you're having to hand-crank it all in the... Uh, in dot-com one boom. So for someone um, with as much of this experience, you've got more of a traditional secret leader profile than some of your other counterparts. Is that, like a, is that tactical? Is that something that you've tried to do? Well, yeah, it's because I'm so old, really. And, you know, I we still, I still use, age. like, at Yahoo email addresses and things. Oh, OK, you've um, said everything. No, it's, I don't think it is tactical. I, mean, I think that the, some of the best entrepreneurs I know 
have very low profiles because they're just very focused on building the business. And I'm always mindful of that as a role model. Uh, Alex Chesterman, for example, you know, does not go out and speak at events uh, other than on a blue moon. Mm. And I think the sort of people who um, you see constantly speaking everywhere are are often not necessarily building the best businesses. So I think you have to be careful about profile. But obviously, when you're fundraising, you need to make sure the message is out there. And from a recruiting point of view, events can be great. And just from a business development point of view, they can be great. So I think finding the right balance, everybody has a different has a different um, equilibrium which works for them. But I, uh, I probably should get out a bit more. <laughs> and uh, you're best known in the industry, realistically, as the subscription guy because so many of your business have, have been focused yeah. around subscription. Is that being completely purposeful, or do they just sort of come to you and you decide that makes sense, or how's that worked in your life? Um, so that's a good question. So I think, so the business that you neglected to mention, Float to Research, my first company, that was a research business selling annual subscriptions to big corporates. And that was a business model that I discovered when I was um, management consultant at McKinsey before that. I, I learned at McKinsey about how valuable that model was, and I, could, I was looking at companies like Bloomberg and... Reuters as it was then and Forrester Research and others and, and could see how valuable they were and what, what a powerful model it was. So that had me consciously choosing to set up a research business with a subscription model. And I, one of the stories I would then tell in that business when we were selling our picks and shovels was we'd be analysing people at Amazon and the sort of argument I would make was Amazon was creating a subscription type model where it, where the existing players weren't used to that, like book, book selling, mm. because it was thinking in a lifetime value way and it was essentially looking at the world the way almost a mobile phone company or a pay TV company would look at it. If I, if I pay quite a lot to acquire the customer but the customer stays with me for years, that's, that's an economically rational thing to do, which from a normal book seller's point of view was alien language. Yeah. And that was, I got to know those models quite well and that was partly why I got interested when I heard about Netflix, which is what triggered the love film journey so, oh, it's a subscription model doing something a bit like Amazon. That sounds really cool. Mm. I could, that definitely has my name on it. And I think what's happened over the last 15 years is so many sectors are seeing this now where you don't actually need a subscription. And I, I worked for a while with, um, in the grocery space, for example, and the, the grocery cohorts look better than any con subscription cohorts, even though they don't have an actual contract on them. They, uh, but they just have a level of renewable predictability that uh, gives you an incredibly strong cohort behavior. And that's the world of e-commerce these days, really. And that happens to suit those of us who started off in subscription. But it's um, ultimately what a subscription is, is a contractual reason to have confidence in your cohort. Yeah. And you don't need a contract to have confidence in your cohort if you've got a very strong and sticky proposition. But obviously, that was the backbone for Love Film. Yes. So before we come on to that story, can I ask you to scoot along a little bit and we'll have Simon Cook come and join us to the stage. Can we get a round of applause for Simon, please? Okay, Simon, hi. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to see you. Before we get started on your journey, um, as you tell the story so well, um, can you, before you even talk about yourself, can you explain in two minutes the history of venture capital? No biggie. Uh, He's actually really good at this, though, like short, succinct, and all, all information. Well, venture capital is about people with money giving money to people with ideas, trying to create new opportunities, and I'm sure it goes back thousands of years. Um, a couple of 500-year-old um, examples. Uh, Gutenberg, when he was building the printing press, raised about 160,000 euros in today's money from two business angels in a one-times participating pref to get that business away at a 50% equity stake. So it was 160,000 pre-money pref deal. Um, so that was 500 years ago. He ran out of money in 1452. The angels crammed him down, and he lost the business. So that was a uh, so nothing the new. The angels crammed him the down. The angels crammed him down. They didn't have VCs <laughs> then. They had it. If you, um, if you were here, of Gutenberg. Uh, if, if you were here 400 years ago or 300 years ago, and you were um, in a pub down the road, you might have cl clubbed together to put some money in a ship, and you would have put uh, a crew together and given them three years worth of supplies. And uh, three years later, they might have turned back up with some goodies. They they might have uh, not returned. That was a different level of risk. But when they came back, the crew would keep 20% of the profits, which is where carry, the carry in the hold is the venture capital phrase carry, which is the 20% of the profits we get. So people with money are always looking for ways to make more money, and people without money who've got ideas are always looking for backers. It's as old as anything. Um, it's 
uh, an art, not a science. If you watch Dragon's Den, you'll see there's no scientific methodology in the negotiation and the valuation. It's purely how excited investors and how convincing entrepreneurs can be. Not a lot of art there either. Um, it, it's, I actually think in, in, in the UK, one of the engineer, at, at 16, you have to decide to do sciences or arts. In America, you do both to 18. And here, because you, you, you learn to do good science, but you don't know how to tell the story, I think we have a, a structural challenge because actually you need to do great science, but also then be able to explain to people in an in a exciting you know, storytelling way about what that might deliver. So, um, but you know, venture capital is really about putting ideas and capital together in a, a risk-balanced way. Post-World War II, which is a bit more real, um, the, the governments were trying to kickstart the US and the European economies. There were a couple of different groups set up to try and find ways to finance them. In this country, the government created something called 3i, where I worked for a number of years, um, which, were, uh, which was designed to try and put money into startups here in the UK. And it, uh, it was a, a government fund that went enlisted in the 90s. In uh, the US, uh, there was a man called General Draper, who's Tim Draper's grandfather. Tim Draper's our partner in California. His grandfather was asked, I think it was by Eisenhower, to set up venture funds in New York. And they were listed, believe it or not, in the 50s. But um, the tax uh, and disclosure rules was too high. So um, General Draper moved to Palo Alto and he bought an orchard and he took an oil and gas 10-year limited partnership structure off the shelf. And he's, because the carry was tax-free, um, he used that. And so the, the reason why venture industry has, is in, in Silicon Valley and the reason why the funds are 10 years long is purely down to General Draper's tax planning and personal desire for some sunshine. But the entire industry has followed that and that's why the American industry looks very different from the European industry. We are bridging both. Um, we ran private funds for a while, but then we decided to uh, try and rebuild a new cool 3i uh, and went public uh, about three years ago. How was that? How was that process? Because I remember seeing you like during the process quite regularly and you, uh, you, you aged for... <laughs> Yeah, well, every I think, time I saw you, it's I got, think you got, were there the night we kind of yeah. invented the whole crazy idea yeah, yeah, on, was, a, yeah. on a dance floor in a ski resort somewhere. Correct. But, um, but the, so the original idea was actually on, a, on an ice trip where we were trying to get money out of institutions and they were being really slow and everybody in the tech industry invests in each other. And I was like, why can't we just get rid of the middleman and why can't I get the crowd to fund my fund and we'll just crowdsource a big venture fund? That was the basic idea of it because um, there was just so much energy and enthusiasm. But, and many of you might actually have money in venture funds. You don't know because you give it to your pension advisor. Your pension advisor gives it to somebody else. Somebody else puts it somewhere. And you might even have money in Axel's fund. You, you just don't know. And somebody's taking 2% on every step of the way. So we were, we were like, how do we change that? And then we came back and we spoke to some lawyers and said, well, if you raise a few hundred million, you can't really do that in a crowd. That's illegal. Um, you have to go public. So that was what led us down that route. We went public the week before Brexit at 120 million market cap. and. Um, we just announced our results. We now have a 600 million market cap. We did 111 million profits last year. Three, three years in a row with 50, 60% returns. That's amazing. Okay, so very credible man to have on the stage battling it out years ago, though, with a younger Will Reeve, all right? How many investments did you have at the time? 60 now? Two or something. Two, yeah. okay, fine. So this is a much greener William Reeve. So now you might um, imagine hearing some of the basic background um, these are two very seasoned people who've seen a lot. But, you know, what was it, eight, nine years ago when, when the deal was happening? Uh, different circumstance. So, what I want to do is get to the story of Love Film. And before we start, Simon, when we were speaking, you obviously alluded to the fact there's definitely a Game of Thrones-esque scenario, which Will and I both think is so we can reference the fact you look a bit like Jamie Lannister. But, you know, who starts off as the most hated and evil character. But... I haven't seen the end, so don't spoil it. Oh. Oh, <laughs> shit. Um, he's a lovely man. I guess starting back from the exit so people have the right context um, and also just an age checker in the room, you know, hands up if you know Love Film. Good, everyone, right? So, you know, there's not no 15-year-olds. Hands up if you know Amazon Prime. It's, yeah. it's the same thing, by the way. That would have been a much more boring one. <laughs> um, yeah. Right, so obviously Amazon Prime, uh, Amazon Prime Video is, uh, is essentially what, you know, Love Film was. So... Going right from the, the most recent moment in history, I suppose, and working back, the question that you don't want to answer, when did Amazon buy Love Film and how much did they buy it for? And either of you feel free to argue over that answer. So I'll, um, 
any lawyers from Amazon here? Um, the, uh, the press speculated, and it's broadly correct, uh, the sale was for about $300 million uh, when we sold it at the time. The press had speculated uh, that we were going to go public at about twice that, a little bit earlier than that, which is part of the story. But there's another part of the story because there's another company that was acquired by Amazon, which hasn't really been talked about, which was for a large sum of money, which is another one of the, um, uh, the, the people vying for the king. It was almost like the, the Dragon Queen. It was actually a lady at the end who did very well out of it. So the, the actual true story is quite complicated. You haven't seen the end of Game of Thrones. I haven't seen the end, so um, I, I've got yeah. the last series to go, so uh, up till series seven. This is going to be really hard, because we want you to tell us a story, <laughs> and none of us want to ruin it for you. So I know how Amazon ends. I don't know how, but the, okay. it's never really been reported. Uh, it's not in Simon Calver's great book. Lots of good stuff in there. But the actual true story of what is Amazon Prime and how many different things went into that, there were a couple. Um, but the actual love film uh, press was for about $300 million. Okay, and Will, can you in, either um, confirm or deny this fact? The timing was late 2010. Dan. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Good. And in, in terms of returns, is about. We'll work with what we've got. Very, very <laughs> roughly, I think about 50 million was invested. Investors made about 150 pounds. This is, and the founders, and there were probably six or seven teams that were merged at least in that. 150 million pounds, to be clear, they didn't make 150 pounds. 150 million pounds, sorry. There were angels as well who you're, who some VCs would typically ignore in these calculations. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, uh, there were a lot of founders running around of the various parts of the business that had merged themselves into what got known as Love Film. OK, so we're talking about around 200 million pounds in the pot, split between 50 million, roughly, to, found, to founders and angels. Don't, don't, don't forget the venture debt either as well, which comes out of the total. Wait, I would, never, I would never forget yeah. the venture debt. The bank, uh, bank and the of, venture debt. Bank of Bravos. Right, and then we've got 150 million to essentially the main investors. Is that and right? about another 100 million to another company on top of all of that, which is never really discussed. Okay, until now. Excellent. So that sets the scene of, um, as you can see, so Simon was the VC who was on the board whilst all of this was happening. Will was the founder, and neither of them are 100% clear how to answer the question. So I think that should demonstrate that it was a bloody complicated deal uh, to look back on and discuss. So what happened after the sale? Like, let's, let's talk about that, like, before we go all the way back. So, um, Will, you were there after the sale. How long did you stick around? Well, actually, I had already left by that point. Okay. So um, I was the last of the founders to leave. I'm slightly doing Mark Dernford a disservice there, but uh, I was the last of the sort of key, key founders who left, and we left essentially after an earlier stage of the business, which when we bought Amazon's business, and mm. that left the whole cap table so diluted that there wasn't much incentive to stay. Right. Uh, but so I was sort of long gone, keeping in regular contact with quite a lot of the investors and working with Simon on some of the aspects of the deal which were causing us grief. Uh, so I was I was in the background. In some, there is some Game of Thrones analogy for this. I can't quite think what it is. Simon's uh, working on but, it. You know, one of the um, one of the meisters behind the scenes trying to concoct some potion or, or, or provide some ideas for the potion concocting that Simon and some of the rest of the board had to think about. Okay, fine. So you, you weren't you, you didn't stick around, but Simon, you were stuck. I have to say, you're trying to tell Game of Thrones backwards, which is really complicated. Yeah, it's even more complicated. <laughs> If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description.
Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. When did you two meet? Let's start there. Um, well, actually, um, when uh, Will was uh, talking about his career, he forgot to mention the career we both had before that, which was we both used to write video games in the 80s. We were um, bedroom video game coders in the 80s. I actually started a company, my first company, doing video games. Then I set up KPMG Internet Consulting, and I was either a customer or a competitor of Will in the 90s before. So we kind of overlapped a little bit in the 90s before we moved into entre- proper entrepreneurship. Had you met each other at that point? I, um, not directly, but certainly the company Fletcher was kind. Of, we did some things together okay. um, at some level. So you know that you knew that there was a sort of thorn in your side somewhere, and that you'd probably come into contact with him at some point. Yeah, it was a long, long time ago. But yeah, it was. It was. I think we found out after we'd uh, been working together. So I think I remember first hearing about Simon. It was actually about a year or so after I'd set up uh, the business I set up with Alex Chesterman. And at the point we were setting up, we went, um, Alex and I met each other on the, on the circle, in, on the networking front in London, because we'd both been looking at this space for different reasons. I'd been looking at it because my old business partner from my first company had gone to the States to work with them. And, and I had asked my, the smartest guys I know, Have you, has anybody ever seen a business to do with DVDs? For reasons that I probably haven't got time to labor here. And he said, yes, this is a very interesting business Netflix. And it's subscription, e-commerce, DVDs. I'm like, ah, perfect. And interestingly, it had also already tried to go public. So I could pull out its documents. And I could see it was um, consuming an enormous amount of cash. So that uh, put me off, to put it mildly. Uh, As I had made some money, but I didn't fancy putting all my personal balance sheet into play for this. So I then immediately checked what's going on in the UK, and the next bit of bad news was there were four other people in the UK already doing DVD rental in the UK. Um, in Movies was one of them. Um, DVDs on Tap was another one of them. Um, I'm going to forget the other. A movie DVDs, Track. DVDs movie DVDs Track was another one. No, that was later. Movie Track was another one, and I'm really going really to struggle with it. Oh, uh, Mailbox Movies was the fourth. And this is in 2003, early 2003. So anyway, I, I sort of go, okay, that doesn't really suit me. I don't fancy joining the market as number five. In fact, this was 2002, actually, I, I first looked at this. Anyway, I got a call at some point saying, that DVD rental thing, you're still looking at that? I said, vaguely. And they said, you should meet this chap, Alex Chesterman. And so Alex had come at it from a different angle, which was he'd been in the States for 10 years with Planet Hollywood. He'd come back to the UK for family reasons. He'd set up a bagel chain, bringing uh, best ideas from the US over here. Bagel mania. Bagel mania. And somebody had alerted him to Netflix, which, again, he'd seen this public document I'd seen, and he'd gone, oh, I could do that. So, and he'd gone and found a commercial deal that was very powerful and, was, and gave him the ability to put promotional material in all the DVD players selling pretty much across the UK for two years. And that deal, from my point of view, represented a really convincing answer to so how are you going to enter the market and beat these other four guys. And although Alex didn't quite know it at the moment, what Alex needed was somebody with some technology experience. Um, this was a guy who his, he was handling emails at first with a dictaphone to his secretary. And um, so he, although he didn't, it took him a little while to clock. He's also the founder of Zoopla, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it so, took him a little you know, while to not, clock not an idiot. The, uh, how long it was going to, ha, ha, what he needed. Uh, he, that did become clear to him. So the two of us ended up teaming up. And we had this then frightful hurry on, on our hands because the deal with these DVD player promotions was um, from a, they were getting inserted in China, the, these promotions. The first boat was landing on the 1st of September 2003. So we were, we were convinced that this was a tidal wave of DVD sign-ups landing on the 1st of September. So we moved heaven and earth to raise money and get everything sorted for, for, for that deal. And in the meantime, I actually also discovered that there was some guy called Saul Klein running around 
setting up some other business called, uh, which we later discovered was called Video Island. And actually, Video Island, through just complete coincidence, also went live on the 1st of September 2003. Uh, so there was quite a bun fight emerging. And winding the clock forward a bit to get, this is a long answer to your question, Dan, of how did we meet, we were then a year, almost a year later. For various, we had, by this point, we'd bought one of the four existing players in movies. And we had put out feelers to all the other characters. Did they want to get bought? And the clients were like up for a chat until they suddenly went very, very quiet. And again, with hindsight, I know what this means, but at the time I did not know what that means. We were doing very, very quiet, not answering emails, not doing anything, until um, June or whatever it was, 2004. They suddenly popped up in a fanfare, coincidentally, at the same time as they press released that they just signed, uh, raised uh, Series Z or whatever it was. And um, they'd raised money from Casanova Private Equity, I think it was, is that, is yeah. that right? Yeah. Uh, led by Mr. Cook. And actually, sorry to have me able to talk to us for a little while, but now would be a very good time to talk. Um, and that one thing led to another quite quickly, and I found myself meeting Simon, and we ended up merging the two businesses in the summer of 2004. Yeah, I mean, so the, so the analogy is with Game of Thrones, you've got Netflix is coming, right? Winter's coming, Netflix is coming, and you've got between six and ten different groups all trying to win. Uh, and actually, um, it's not hard. You buy some DVDs, <laughs> right? And you, and you set up a website. So to get to your first 10,000 isn't that hard. To scale up to millions is a massively complicated thing and required a lot of money. So we looked at, we looked at all the different players. But uh, Saul had been bought in by Simon Franks to Video Island, had some money from Index and from Benchmark. Um, and uh, we thought, well, this is largely a capital game. So if we, wherever we plant our army, our big check, will kind of tip the playing field. So everybody was jostling and talking to each other, but we thought, this is a, this, let's make a bold move. But we, we only had uh, about $10 million of equity to put down. So we went to the Iron Bank, or Venture Capital, uh, Venture Debt, Creos, and we convinced Ross uh, at Creos to also put in 10 million of debt. Now, this is a company with you know, a million pounds of revenue. How could you put $10 million of debt in? Because um, what we, we they had the, 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 the DVDs with the asset, but Ross was worried about how does he get his assets back um, but then we realized uh, we've got the credit card numbers of the customers. So he didn't have to actually collect the DVDs. He could just charge the customer. So we managed to convince the bank to lend us. So we put $20 million into one, $20 million into Video Island. This then sort of tilted. So we had the biggest army. And then the different groups came to us, apart from, of course, um, Thomas Hogan Love Film. So we then built, with William, uh, Video Island Screen Select. We had one army. And then the other uh, group that was acquiring, and we acquired Three or four ones after that. We did, yeah. We acquired, a, we acquired quite a few. And Thomas had gone and acquired DVDs on tap. He had... It's worth just getting a quick dig in at Thomas here. Thomas had was owned a, the whole business, basically, and, and had, had decided he needed to rebrand it. And he came up with the name Love Film. Uh, now, Thomas is Norwegian. and very proud of his Norwegian roots and designed the <coughs> Winter Olympic opening ceremony for Norway or something like this. Anyway, he's a very creative character and very proud of his ability to come up with the name Love Film. Uh, and got the URL in a whole bunch of countries, but not Norway, which proved to be very irritating when we found ourselves buying a Norwegian business a bit later. And what he ne certainly never told us, or certainly he never told me, I'm prepared to believe Simon knew and kept it under his hat, was that love film actually is quite a rude word in large chunks of Europe, uh, signifying porn films, basically. Um, and especially it signifies that in Norway, where <laughs> Thomas comes from, and which I think is partly why he never got the URL for it. Anyway, sorry, I was digressing. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so you're now sitting on a porn empire. You've rebranded <laughs> to Well, so to this is so the, the interesting, so as we were all trying, so again, winter's coming, Netflix is coming, we're all trying to win the market because we all want Netflix to buy us, right? So oh, that was the whole... Can I just interrupt a moment here? Um, winter came. Well, we'll get to that. No, it came in, uh, it came in 2004. Yeah, but it didn't really, no. And Netflix invested $15 million in, in entering the UK market in, I think, 2004, maybe in 2005. They breached the wall. They took a massive warehouse in Peterborough. They set, created an office with 30 people in Covent Garden. They oh, bought... Peterborough Winterfell. <laughs> yes. Uh, of course. I think it's more the, the miserable one with a really tall, tall turret that you can fall... Anyway, um, uh, on the East Coast. Um, they bought a load of DVDs, and they said... He said... Reed, I mean, Reed has some, has some quite hilarious moments along this journey. Reed said something like, 
So this, asked, is Reed, this is Reed Hastings, Hastings the founder, the CEO of, founder of Netflix. And he said, when he asked by analysts or something, is there anything that would scare you? He said, there's only one thing that would scare me, which is Amazon coming after me. So then the following six, six months later, when he hasn't launched yet in the UK, he's, but he spent $15 million setting up for launch, Amazon, so, somehow it leaked that Amazon was about to enter the market. And, sudden, and Reed Hastings panicked, basically. And, he's, and he also, I think at the same time, he just dropped his, or raised his prices and his churn through, through he made something. He basically went onto a massive about turn and he wrote off the entire UK investment. So we managed to pick up quite a lot of those assets on the cheap, actually, including his DVD library. Yeah, his DVD library. Um, but um, winter wasn't too frightening at that point in time because even though he'd hired loads of people, spent 15 million, which was roughly more than we had at that point, our bit of the business had raised. Um, we concluded he was too scared to compete with us. And so the, um, the next chapter in the journey is we've got Love Film and Thomas Hogue has acquired five or six companies. We've got our army with five or six companies uh, and um, ultimately Amazon. And hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm sorry. Amazon. We need to talk about the bit which the VCs were most stupid on. Can we do that? Which bit's that? Which bit's that, he says. Um, you can't allow Simon to reference the bit the VCs were most <laughs> stupid Well, on. I think Simon will accept the fact that there was some, there was some stupid VC behaviour going on here. Uh, which was, we need to go and buy some continental businesses uh, because we're only in the UK and we obviously need to sell to some American business. And they, they Netflix, will think... Netflix will buy the biggest European... They will, they will think, when they re research Euro Europe, that it's a single market and that it's, um, uh, it, it, we need to be everywhere in Europe. And so we need to go and plonk some flags, that was pretty much the language used, yep. in as many European countries as possible. Yep. Every time we bought a company, they would acquire a company. So there was, it was just tit for tat. And we need to talk a little bit about the names of one of those companies, which is, for the puerile Brits like me, quite funny, which is a company called Bra Film, which is obviously a movie company to do with bras. Uh, and um, that was a Swedish business that uh, was one of these tit for tat. Yep. Maneuvers. Box so at this point, there's two, the there's two like conglomerates essentially. Yeah, again, like... so some of the armies had come together. Yeah. Uh, fight, and one, actually, one of the things I'd say, um, when we're in companies with competition, people always worry about competition. I actually say some of the best performing teams I've ever been involved with are when you've got a common enemy and you're really fighting that, you get so much better performance. I think the growth rate and the, and the creativity and the, the work we were doing on, on the yeah. cash flow and just, you know, yeah. the, the, because there was a deadly competitor. We did a lot of things actually, before Netflix did. We were the yeah. first people to do um, downloading or uh, premium movies online. Um, we, we did that with Universal and King Kong at least a year before Netflix did anything like that. We were the, that was the world first. We were the first people to let you rent games. Uh, which um, is still quite a big opportunity in the US, which is really untapped. We, we, did, we did lots of things first, and largely because... Because it's ultimate competition, we were, which is we were, great, actually. We were so fighting very fiercely. Yeah, so as a VC, often people say, oh, you've got too much competition. We actually think competition, as long as you win, <laughs> ultimately, but actually having, a, having a, a direct killer competitor is actually a really good motivational thing for... When you're doing all these, like, you know, these two conglomerates, there's like five companies here, five companies here, and you're all like, turning into essentially two. Yeah. Like, how do you manage all those egos? So, like, you know, is it like insulting? Like, you, like, you bought me, I didn't buy you, but actually... You know, it, like, how does well, that, that actually manifest itself? Like, you tell it like it's all so smooth. Well, but, people I mean, like Will and Alex left, smooth. right? Um, I mean, that's why there are so many founders of Love Film out there, because it, well, they weren't actually Love Film founders, but that's what it became. Yeah. But, you know, people like Will and Alex went on and did other things, and, and Saul, and lot, lots of people left. Lot, not many people stayed, right? Mm -hmm. Simon Calver came in, and it became... A, it, businesses change. When they go from 10, 50,000 to 2 or 3 million subscribers, it was, a, it was a very big business, and things changed. So, you know, well, it, it wasn't smooth in the personalities at all. There were lots of... Fallings out. Yeah. Lots of bitterness? As in, like, can you actually remember, or was uh, it, you know... These, these days, we all, we all work with each other pretty much without really any significant exceptions. I think the... Um, apart from maybe Thomas. Uh, but um, the... Um, Which character the big, is Thomas? The big, uh, the big ego issue we had was the... Um, was, so Thomas was the Norwegian who, who um, owned and, and named the love film business. Yeah. And the big thing that was really important to him was the name. Genius name, as you must all agree, especially those of you from Germany. That was very important to him. And what he'd done is he'd really focus on the brand. And what we'd done was really focus on growth. And the net result was at the point we, we kept thinking the right thing to do is to tie the two businesses up, but the egos kept getting in the way. So I, you know, I spent a year, while the competition was going, I would be the, the, uh, the envoy MSC would go along and try and have lunch. I had quite a few lunches with Thomas 
ultimately trying to broker some kind of let's get together and, and fight the fight the, the north. Um, and actually, one of the key relationships there was I, I had quite a good, admittedly, personal headbutting relationship with Mark Livingston, who was the when I was running our business, he was running their business. And Adam Vulcan was quite. And we had we had a lot of the we had investor egos getting in our way. We had um, we had actually quite a lot of egos in the way, but uh, there were some ongoing relationships. And ultimately, it became clear to a couple of things Thomas needed, but the main thing he needed was the brand. And and by this point, we were twice as big as his business. So we at some point he'd overtake when when we were busy integrating one of our bigger acquisitions, he'd overtaken us, and then we'd 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 become almost twice as big. And um, we, were, we were fussed about growth and not brand, and he was fussed about brand, and we eventually realized stuff, it doesn't matter about that. And we, we did a little bit of user research on brands and confirmed, in the, we mistake we made was it only did in the UK, but we confirmed that Love Film Brand was at least as good a brand as any of the brands we had. Yeah. And we went, fine, given that well, he can have the brand, don't care. And, uh, yeah. So that was like coming back and trying to negotiate. It was it, it ultimately, so the, the first thing Thomas said is, uh, I can't work with them, you have to buy me out. So we agreed a price, I went out and raised you know, 50 million of debt and equity, went back to Thomas and said, here you go, we'll buy you out. And he said, well, if you like it that much, I'm staying in. So he then threw that deal out. You're getting an idea about Thomas. And, and so it, we went back to the equity deal and then it became about the brand. So I had to go back to their board and say, come on guys, the brand's not that bad. So it was a year of constant back and forth trying to you know, get together and figure it out. Ultimately, we, we, we did get there. He, Thomas was one, of the, was one of the winners out of this process, though, no question. And yeah. the rest of us were probably putting a bit too much store by, let's just get the deal done. And um, I was always worried about what I call press release risk, which was the, um, the idea that I might wake up in the morning and I'd get a news alert that says, that, you know, uh, Netflix has just bought Thomas's business. Uh, or something like that, and that always worried me. And I think the big, the big motivation to get the deal done was we were to really eliminate press release risk. Uh, and Thomas was, um, Thomas was, Thomas got probably one of the best deals out of the whole process. And, um, and well, Thomas well, mainly really because wanted. he borrowed the debt to finance it, so he he managed to get his equity stake quite cheap because he bank financed it rather than equity financed it. Right. It's a complicated story, but he did quite well because so, he borrowed somebody's money to do the whole deal. So at this point, there's two, there's two big companies. When do they become one? Like at this point? So we merged those two businesses in the middle of, middle of 2006. Okay, and who, 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 like, who manoeuvres and how does the, what does the board look like when you're having these conversations? You can't have everyone on the board. That's, and, partly, and that's and, partly where the whole yeah. egos can get in the way. Yeah. Um, and that was, um, I mean, we were, that was quite a complicated uh, bit of geometry, but um, Simon's described it accurately that the, um, effectively he then decides he wants to be in rather than out, which threw us a bit of a wobbly because we'd been, we were expecting him to be out mm. and to have full control of everything. But at the same time, we were almost twice as big, so we were sort of clearly going to be the guys running the business. And this um, is all relevant to where the next stage goes, by the way. So we're, we're yeah. trying to. Not but the, but Thomas wanted his say on how the top team was assembled, and there were two two things he really pushed for, if I remember rightly. Here, one was his head of branding, uh, who's an amazing guy, Simon Morris. He really wanted Simon to be on the team, and we didn't have too much of a problem with that because we did understand they had they had done a good job building a brand as our user testing had showed us. Uh, and the other thing that he was absolutely determined on was that Alex Chesterman must not have a role on the team, <laughs> uh, and um, he really hated Alex for various reasons. And um, so he chucked off the team somebody who I regard as probably amongst the top two entrepreneurs in the UK. Um, and um, Alex was fine with that. He's like, that's no problem. I have many other great businesses left in me. Uh, so off he went. Um, and, um, but then we had the rest of the whole management team and we had... Um, we brought Simon Calvary in the back. We brought Matt, Simon took over at that point. And we had most of the board. We had, he had one board seat, was it, at that point? <clears throat> yeah, and we agreed uh, from the three VCs on our side that we would have one rotating and I took it. And the others never came back. So I ended up with it for about <laughs> seven years, six years. Right, yeah. Okay, so where does this go? So, you know, you've spent all this time basically creating Actually, one sorry, just, just to mention, because it's a good question, Dan, like what the, all the issues. One of the major issues, and we, you know, I say this having done seven or eight acquisitions or, and thought about more of them, uh, one of the major issues is office location. Uh, and that was a major pain point. And actually, we ended up, um, our head office was in, sunny North Acton and there and that was a pain point for them because we moved we closed their head office and Hammersmith down moved it there but we took their warehouse location and we closed our North Acton warehouse and moved it to theirs in Peterborough 
and those are those are some of the most mm. contentious issues. Um, but um, yeah. Okay, and, we're, and Amazon, you know, is in Slough. So, so if Amazon's the Lannisters, we've united the North, we've got another, another group, we've got one big army, and then we, uh, Amazon pops up, and we have to decide, in order to defeat Netflix, we need to team up with Amazon. So well, that's well, you have two Arguably, options, right? one of the earlier, earlier alliances uh, that we managed to cast was before that, and this was thanks to Saul. So Saul had done a white-labeled... Saul was only with the business for about a year, but in that period, he'd done a white-labeled deal with Microsoft, which turned out to be a complete flop, and with Tesco, which turned out to be really quite a big deal. One among the other things going on in the space, Blockbuster launched, again, in the UK, ahead of anywhere else in the world, on a competitor with us, and they price-matched against Tesco, which is not a good place to be if anybody's ever tried price-matching against Tesco. I don't recommend it. And that, and that was one of those sort of interesting ones where it's almost like the Dornish army has arrived out of left field and you're not really expecting it. Uh, and we'd always expected to be able to move our prices upwards um, but when we had Blockbuster and Tesco going toe-to-toe, Tesco was out with us as a white-label partner, but they insisted on pulling prices down, not moving them up. That threw us a bit for six, and that was partly why... So then, then the bun fight really started when Amazon entered our market uh, a year or so later. And again, they came in essentially viewing Tesco and Blockbuster as the sort of two prices they need to set against. And, um, yeah, sorry, so then that, that, at this point... We were it was still, all still DVD rental. It was, it was still DVD rental, and this was all in 2005 and six. And we were still, we were now at this point in the sort of two opposing clans, if you like. We had Thomas's lot, and we had our lot, and but we had a common enemy, which was Amazon, and we all had this sense of Netflix is coming, which was either winter or summer, depending on you know who, how they did that and how yeah. and, and whether they they bought in. Who sits around the table and, like, is it a board meeting? Like, how does the scenario come up? They're like, right, strategically, we have to make a call here. Are we going to, I presume, IPO? Are we going to try and do that? Or are we going to try and exit to Amazon? Because one of them has to be our path. Or is it a third path? So I think that, one, well, um, you know, the management's job is to run and build the best business. And you try not to distract them too much with all of this deal making. A good, you know, the good VCs, you know, I was, you know, you're, we're out, you know, having lunch with different people, talking to different people, keeping options open, looking at different financing, talking to bankers is the IPO market. So I think one of the roles the board plays is to help navigate the landscape. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to buy versus build. Netflix actually has never acquired anybody, I don't think, and they've just built the best product. And sort of the moral of the story might be just focus on all this deal doing is very clever stuff. But actually, if you give customers the best product, and come up with killer content, you just win, right? So the board would run around and come up with ideas for deals. Management would be like, we're trying to run a business. And every time these acquisitions took place, it's a year of integration. I mean, it's not just, oh, we bought Lovefilm. You, you, you have to then sit down for a year and combine the teams, combine the tech, combine the... It, these are massively distract, distracting obligations on the team that you, who are trying to make money for all of us. So, you know, you, the, the, a good board and investor won't be throwing ideas all the time and we'll try and fend off a lot of stuff but with Amazon I think they, it came where they actually decided they didn't they came in they tried it we were beating them and they said we were winning tell you what um, you're winning you will join forces with you and um, we bought their business which is about the same size I think for about 30% so it was a slightly better deal in our favor yeah, we were, they were they were about a third of ours and we gave them about a third of the equity very roughly um, but they they had a very memorable line which I always thought was a good lesson for me which was um, they could see we were winning. He said, we do not believe in being a loser in anything we do. We'd much rather have a small piece of the winner than a big piece in the loser. And that was their indication. They'd much rather sell to us than compete with us. And, um, but they also wanted, uh, was, in fact, we, I think it was a 20, I think they, they were about a third of our size. We gave them about 25% of the equity, if I remember rightly. But what they wanted was some ability to buy out the rest of the shareholders at some point in the future. They viewed it as something of an option on how digital would play out, because we hadn't launched digital yet. Actually, we, we had just started, actually. We were, doing, we were doing King Kong and stuff like that, but it wasn't, the numbers were immaterial. And they wanted, they felt that, as we did, that whoever had the big customer base was ultimately going to win in the digital space. And they wanted an option to see how that worked, and depending what happened, then to buy out the other shareholders. And but we, we didn't. We yeah. negotiated very hard for Amazon not to have that option, and we kept them below 30%. So the idea was we wanted to go public. So we hired Goldman Sachs. We were looking to go public. 
and with less than 30% with a strategic owner, they don't have the strength to force a sale. Um, and so, or to uh, block a sale. Or to block sales. So we, um, and so we were very friendly with Amazon. We were going public, a uh, big valuation. They were supportive. As digital started getting more interesting... And this was in 2000 and... This is summer 2008. Because we just... Oh, maybe it was, sorry, yeah. Because we, we just finished... I left just after we'd finished integrating their business. The easy bit of that was the UK. The difficult bit of that was the German business, where they were bigger than us in Germany. And as soon as that was done, I left. That was summer 2008. And it's probably 2009. So 2009, financial crisis, we couldn't go public. And DVD... And, and digital starts to take off. So this friendly firm that was backing us as the winner just had a little change of heart. Amazon, the friendly Amazon. firm. So the, Everyone uh, knows them as a friendly firm. The, the, you know, so, so, we, so we had these three armies going up against the north, and now uh, one of the armies decided to turn against us. And um, uh, they, um, We had some very strange behaviour where they, they had a board seat, and the guy on the board would say one thing, and then we'd send documents off to get approved by the shareholders, and it wouldn't come back. And so there was clearly... Uh, a, a very interesting dynamic for a while where um, their agenda was completely unknown. Um, and to the point where, um, you know, we would try to appro approve the annual budget uh, or management bonuses or the REMCOM, and the, the guy would approve it and send it to Seattle and it wouldn't come back. So we spent a year in not knowing what was going on. Um, uh, and obviously the, the IPO market was shut. So the and the financial crisis was causing massive distress all over the place, including for and so fa certain family offices we could mention. Yeah, and so yeah. A, a certain um, uh, key investor from the country next to Sweden... Who um, <laughs> <laughs> um, may or may not have been mentioned. Who may or not may have been yep. mentioned, uh, had a desire for some liquidity. And remember, he debt-financed his stake. Um, and so... And one of the... Uh, one of the when, you, when you invest in private companies, there's lots of rules. Um, you know, who can sell shares, who can transfer shares. Generally, you allow a little bit of movement because things can happen. We had so many shareholders, it was very complicated. But well, in fact, and, and again, I'm just going to do another little dig in at VCs here. What generally happens here is all the shareholders want as much flexibility as possible. The VCs say, absolutely not. We're writing the term sheet. Thou shalt not have flexibility. Apart from us, we have VCs, we get to write the term sheet. So VCs typically have... Um, much more flexibility to sell shares. And they come up with all sorts of arguments, which Simon knows very well indeed, about uh, how they might need to... They might have other funds, they might sell secondary stakes, they might go public, all sorts of reasons why they need, in a very innocent way, to be able to transfer shares from one entity to another. Um, and the usual riposte to that, as an entrepreneur, is fair enough, but we need board consent for that. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that the arguments for why you need board consent are clearer and stronger post the Amazon Love Film situation than they were beforehand. So at this point in time, all the, the, devil is in the, detail all, in all the key VCs had, I think I'm right in saying, full unconstrained rights to sell their shares without board consent. Uh, and the rest of the shareholders did not. And what was the consequence of that? So the consequence of that is um, a, a deal was done between Amazon and Thomas, which got them to 40-odd percent, which gave them enough to be without able... Without you guys knowing? It was in the article. We couldn't. Yeah. Uh, so what happened? Actually, it, it, so it was fair, done without. We couldn't stop it. To be fair, there were preemption rights. So, so what happened was Thomas, um, or somebody similar, bearing a very similar profile to Thomas, um, uh, his twin, found a deal or made a deal with uh, Amazon to offload some of his holding, not all of his holding, but some of his holding to alleviate liquidity issues, and that got put to all other shareholders as a preemption process, i.e. everybody else gets to take their, their stake in that deal if they want it. But so Amazon at this point had a quarter of the business, so Amazon was entitled, at the very least, to get a quarter of this holding, and the VCs had 50% uh, of the business or something, so would have been able to take 50%, but that would have left founders and angels and not people without the sort of cash to find six-figure, seven-figure sums to take the other quarter. So almost come what may, even if all the VCs had taken their full entitlement, which, which is very unlikely for early-stage funds that are being offered to stay shares in a business which is trading at 100 million plus, Amazon would have, at the very least, been able to insist on taking a quarter of the deal. And that would have pushed them, I forget the numbers exactly now, that would have pushed them into the, to, take, to something like 28.5% or something. So they were going to get extremely close to the 30% threshold. On top of that, the VCs are essentially going, I'm not really interested in taking this stake, it's not really my mandate. I, I, I can't take the whole thing, 
so I can't, so there's not much time point taking anything. So the next thing you know is in one fell swoop, Amazon ended up jumping through the 30% threshold and buying, I think, the whole stake uh, for you know, whatever it was. Which, and they were being offered, I can't remember now, 8% of the business or something. So it, was, it sort of got them from something like 25 to something like 33 or something. Or something and presumably they weren't that keen on you going public. Well, they decided at that point that digital was the future and they were very keen to change. So, yeah, the, um, the, the strategy completely changed. Now, I'll be absolutely clear, this is all legal, it's perfectly right, but the point is you really... Uh, just just also, to be clear, we were advised by our lawyers that they couldn't do this. Before, before, well, so when we said we need protection against them being able to block, block stuff, we were assured we had protection and we had it. And they had, there, was a, there was a special agreement that said they always needed at least one other investor to support them to block anything, which they signed as part of that process. But Thomas was one of the... I'm sorry, the, yeah, but, um, I think Lovehorn was... Uh, no, so, so I'm not saying they couldn't, but... but so, so, yeah, I think what our lawyers didn't consider the, 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 was the, the possibility that we might break ranks. Yeah. I think, yeah. again, to, to the game of the throne, so, you know, the, people think you, you build a business, you sell it. The gamemanship between the different shareholder groups here ended up with a position where they could make an offer that was a reasonable offer. This is all legal. Yeah. But without, you know, the, you know, these deals are so complicated, these agreements are complicated. Nobody sets out to... Amazon, I don't think, set out to create a document that gave them the ability to do this, but uh, they, they have a lot of lawyers. They got one. They, 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 yeah, I think. I don't, I don't think they had foreseen this scenario happening. Digit, when, when we got together with them, digital wasn't emerging as the obvious. I think they, they clearly wanted, they clearly considered the possibility that you know, digital would go well and that they wanted their stake in the business to be an option on taking the whole thing out. Right. But we were very clear that they could, have, they could have market arm's length rights to buy the whole business, they couldn't have privileged access to buy the whole business. And that we'd got, and we'd had spent quite a lot of money with quite a well-known law firm, who reassured us that they, what they needed to to block or impede anything was at least one of the other VCs to support them. Um, but I think what we were what we were not alert to was the creeping control issue that okay. has essentially so, happened. And, and so the net outcome is that you know Amazon is, um, I guess, siding with someone who will remain nameless but may have been mentioned a few times. Um, well, in, so to, to, be, to, be, to be fair, after he did that after that transaction happened, I think um, we were all on the same side against because it, it, it was one of these situations where, although um, that deal was in that individual's favour, he's then terrified that Amazon's going to strike the same deal with somebody else. So there's a, suddenly a real worry about everybody trying to be the first through the exit. Yeah. And this is where I remember Simon and I spent quite a long time talking about this, and I, I found myself dealing with some of the other VCs and I ended up, I think successfully arguing, you guys should all sign a lockstep agreement which says you, you cannot be picked off individually. You all commit to not being picked off because otherwise you're all terrified the other guy gets picked off. And I think that is, in the end, you did, you did do that. Yep. Um, but what we should have done was agree a, a lockstep agreement I mean, beforehand. Yeah, to, to, the moral of the story is, you know, un, you know it's not about building and selling. It, you know, it, these exits are much more complicated than you'll ever read in the press. Mm. It's all legal. Um, ultimately, that's the reason why um, you know, it had to be Amazon and why we chose to go ultimately with Amazon. Um, they, they did well to, to get a good deal. But you need to spend billions on content rights. You're not going, we couldn't have bought Top Gear. We couldn't have you know, commissioned House of Cards. We knew that the, the, the future of this was you know, billions of pounds of investment. And we could never have played. So in the end, I think, you know, as I said, the, the outcome, despite the Game of Thrones that got us there, is one of the most successful tech teams in London is down the road. With Amazon's global video business is based in London, employing thousands of people. There's a couple of just additional points at the end of the story that haven't been really told before. One is um, the angels got us back because when we did ultimately uh, negotiate the sale, they refused to sign any agreements. So we ended up as VCs taking all the escrow and the angels didn't get any of that pain. Um, so they managed to get their own pound of flesh back uh, in a little way we towards had, we the end. left the business a long time before. You left details, the, details. You before that, but <laughs> there, was a, there, was, yeah, every, you know, there's, um, there was a lot of pain involved in that. And ultimately... When we built Love Film uh, and moved to digital, we built some technology, but we were also uh, buying a lot in. And there's a, an amazing lady called Paula Byrne, who is the, obviously the dragon queen in this analogy, and she built a company called Push, Push Button, building all this digital tech and doing all the uh, apps, that, that, the work you see today. And she hadn't taken any VC financing. So uh, a couple of months after Amazon bought Love Film, they said, right, where's the tech? Let's get going. 
Uh, and despite all the lawyers and all the diligence and all of the shenanigans, they realized we didn't actually own the digital platform. <laughs> so uh, they had to go uh, down to and see Paula, and they bought her business allegedly for um, you know, uh, a three-figure million amount. Uh, and she had no VCs to share that with, so she did rather well out of this. And she, she retired, I think, last year, and she ran the whole business. And she's one of the most amazing unsung tech talents and most successful entrepreneurs we've had in this country who really made uh, out of this deal. And it, it's, 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 it's amazing. There's so many people walk around claiming to be the founders of Love Film, but the one that really made a success of it, you know, is an amazing... I think she was in her 50s when she, uh, <clears throat> when she sold it to Amazon. So she, she came from the video games industry. She ran uh, games studios up in Manchester in the 80s when I was there. Uh, incredible uh, story about a success, and you'll never hear about it from all of those 25 people who claim to be the founders and successful uh, entrepreneurs behind Love Film. The message, when you read about these exits and how was it, it's way more complicated than you can ever imagine. It takes years, there are many moving parts, um, and the legal agreements and the shareholder cap table and who, work, who you work with ultimately is what really matters, and you have to have people that are working with you at the board and, and you're in, as investors in your company yeah. that you can deal with these issues on. Um, I learned a lot. I probably would have done quite a lot of things differently. Um, I didn't see... You know, I was a little bit asleep at the wheel uh, when, the, when, when um, Amazon started doing deals behind the scenes, and we should have seen some of that coming. I think you and I probably look at legal agreements in a very different way these days, you know, because you, you learn through these iterations. Have you seen as complicated a deal since then uh, in either of your careers? Mm. Or is this just par for the course and this is just one story that we're hearing tonight, but they're all like this? It, this is unusual, but it's not exceptional. So, um, I mean, the Zoopla story has a, quite a lot of... Um, M&A in it, and the, the key deal there was the deal between Zoopla and the Daily Mail Property Group, mm. and that was that had some parallels with the um, sort of Th Thomas Us deal. I would I would add a couple of things actually. I would say um, one of the other lessons for me that I took out of it was uh, I think the board made a pretty serious error, which was actually just after I left, but it was around refusing to countenance any secondary or liquidity for shareholders. And to be fair to the board, back then that was very normal posture. But this was not normal times, this was 2008, 2009. And, and I think ultimately, um, Thomas is not a bad person, as one might inadvertently conclude. Um, the, you know, the, those times were very difficult and stress, stressful, and, and liquidity was very hard to find. And um, the deal that Amazon were able to do was because essentially the board left all the shareholders who wanted to no other option. Uh, and um, that, with hindsight, was not a good call. Uh, and there were, there were probably other deals to be done around liquidity that um, would have stopped the thing exploding, basically. The other thing I'd say, um, so sparing his brushes, blushes, is, I mean, we definitely learned a lot in this whole thing. I learned, some of the key lessons I learned, I learned from Simon. Uh, and we, um, this is my first time in a, in a VC back business. Um, but I, I dealt with quite a lot of VCs and in this process, and Simon taught me more than any of the other VCs taught me in that. Uh, and a couple of the things that he taught me, I think, are really very, very much to his credit, and I've still found useful to this day. One of them was this whole venture debt thing, which um, wasn't obvious, actually, and our other VCs were not especially keen on that. They had a very selfish mindset of, essentially, if there's more capital to be put into this business, I want to be putting it in there. And I and Alex were very dilution sensitive and, and felt we'd and actually to be fair also Netflix's share price had halved in this process as well so we, we were not we were not keen to be raising equity money and Simon came up with this concept of why don't, why don't we take a look at using using venture debt which was a very brand new concept really and that wasn't really in his fund's interest that was in the business's interest and that but it actually was really useful learning for us um, and Simon then taught me something which was an incredibly valuable lesson that, that in fact Simon, uh, Simon was quite irritating at this whole thing for quite a while. Uh, but it was all about cash and cash management. And one of the things that was happening was every month we ended up with a little bit more cash than we had forecast to have. And Simon kept asking, why is that? And I, I, I was responsible for finance at this point, and I kept thinking, well, it's because of this, or it's because of that. Or it's, it's this rabbit that's just climbed out the hat, or there's some lightning bolt that's just struck, or whatever it was. And every month, that, that, those rabbits and lightning was were happening. But Simon just kept on it and going, there's, there's something more going on here. There's something, there's something you haven't modelled properly. And this was despite the fact that... Was our, our basic 
model of the business was it needs a lot of cash. Right? We've got to buy a lot of DVDs, we've got to do a lot of marketing, we've got to pay the Royal Mail, it's very expensive. And Netflix was demonstrating just how expensive it could be because they were buying bucket loads of DVDs and all this stuff. And actually, thanks to Simon not giving up on this one, I eventually managed to get with my team, managed to figure out what was going on. We discovered actually that the, the cash model was not what Netflix was doing and it was much better than Netflix's model. And it actually meant that contrary to our expectations, the business was generating cash when it grew, which was counterintuitive. And that was really useful. And once we worked that out, we were able to save ourselves an entire funding round. So mm. it probably wasn't to Simon's benefit that one either. But that was an incredibly useful lesson for me around working capital and paying attention to capital. And it's the sort of thing which doesn't show up in investment decks. And you, you, know, you normally model your P&L and you, you, you maybe think of it as then it's EBITDA and then EBITDA becomes cash. And that's about as far as you ever go. Even to this day, that's how, about as far as you go. But it really made a big difference there. And, and Simon had the sort of smarts to to know there was something a bit funny going on. And, and, and you pointed me in roughly the right directions of going, it's, there's something funny here. Because when, when you actually pay the suppliers, and how does all that work? And, and eventually I, I managed to work out what was going on. So thank you for that. Well, and the key for that was if we had extra cash, it wasn't, oh, let's pay dividends or profits or debt like a private equity firm, but it was, Growth. we could go faster. So, yeah. and, and rather than, you know, I always say the worst thing you can ever do as a business is raise venture capital, right? You know, every time you raise money, you're going to lose 10, 20, 30% of your business. You do that five, six times, you'll have nothing left. So raising money is bad. Funding your business through organic growth, those are the kinds of business. You look at all the big unicorns, Betfair, Just Eat, Love Film at a certain peak, they're self-financing. And you can go from, you know, from a 5 million to 500 million without another round. That's how you become a billionaire, right? And so trying to find and understand how the business is really working, using some of the private equity skills, but in a venture capital mindset, let's go faster, was what we were trying to do. And it was, uh, it was cool when we figured it out. <laughs> I just have to ask Simon, what is the worst behavior you've seen from an entrepreneur in your venture capital experience? We always hear about the evil VC, yeah. but uh, you know, what about the uh, evil entrepreneur? So uh, the, it's a hitch-driven business. It's music, it's film, it's television. Um, you know, it's a hitch-driven business. So we make all, um, all venture firms, make most of their money from 30%. The other 70%, there's a perception they're worthless or not. There's actually good value. You might have 100 employees, 100 customers, be turning over 10 million. And just because it's not going to be worth a billion doesn't mean it's not interesting. So 70% of our exits are where we get our money back. But in order to do that, you have to recut the cap table, realign interests, and say, guys, it's just not going to be what either any of us thought it was. So let's work together to find a good outcome. And you know, there are and entrepreneurs that, and other investors, to be honest, or angels that work with us and see that, okay, we've, you know, you know, it just wasn't the right idea at the right time. You know, before Skype, there were 10 void companies. We had one. You know, there, you know being the right, at the right place at the right time is largely luck. You know, good teams can be there at the beginning, but a lot of the times you're not. And so the worst thing an entrepreneur can do is just be so, you know, rigid in trying to, you know, continue to believe that the billion dollars coming, let's just keep spend, spend, spend. When actually, the, the real cost, and to Alex Chesterman's point, is the opportunity cost. If Alex had just been stuck in there saying, I'm not leaving, I'm, this one's going to work, he never would have created Zoopla. So what entrepreneurs have to do is, and they forget about sometimes, is the opportunity cost of going to do something else. Say, this one hasn't worked, let's call it a day, let's walk away with a million, let's go do the next one, because the next one could be you know, the big one. And that, there are quite a few entrepreneurs who just refuse to kind of give up when you know, they should. And as an angel investor, would you say the same thing? What's the question, sorry? So, uh, when, what's when the worst behaviour well, behavior behavior. you see from entrepreneurs? Selling your stake to Amazon, no. <laughs> I've made you know, a lot of investments. I've only seen one case of probably outright fraud. I've, I've heard of one or two others, and they certainly do give pause. I think that the, um, the, the whole industry is pushing entrepreneurs into sort of ethically difficult places because everybody wants to hear some amazing story and some big unicorny you know, plan and in the real world usually the actual plan or the numbers people would actually like take out a mortgage on the house for is going to look quite different from the one presented to investors um, but I think I don't I haven't seen any any situation where I sort of can't bear to be in the same room with people afterwards other than the one outright case of fraud which was a mobile taxi booking business unfortunately about 10 years before Uber came along, oh. uh, very much ahead of its time. Uh, and um, those situations are rare, thankfully. Thank you very much, guys. You've been awesome guests. Can we have a round of applause for our guests. <laughs> 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I watched the film The Holiday and I thought, does that even exist? All the money from my exit has been spent on my house, which is currently sitting empty. What I really want to do is go on holiday and stay in a home. But it was early and it felt like there was a slice of that behaviour which was people like me, people with families, people who like to travel, who are homeowners, who wanted to swap their home or their second home in order to go on vacation. That was Debbie Wasco the founder of Love Home Swap that she sold for over £50 million and is now the founder of Albright, a club and community that celebrates and connects women at work. To see how she views the future of business and equality, you'll just have to tune in or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.